This is Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. If you came across a bizarre Miami crime story, it was probably written by David Ovalle. He's kind of had an inside track on it. You write about crime for the Miami Herald for 20 years, you're going to write some crazy stories. I mean, it's crime in Miami. Just listen to this trail of characters he's come across. There were the guys running a black market for body-shaping Colombian fajas. The ring of scammers who stole gas, pumped it into a makeshift tank into the back of their car, and sold it on the side of the road. Sounds super safe, am I right? If it's strange and ends up in the courts, David's going to find it, and he's going to write about it. But David never forgets about the people in his stories. Not just the strangest, the strangeness of the crime. I mean, there's that too. Mostly, though, he's writing about what drives people to do the crazy things that they do. David's going to apply that skill in a new way at the Washington Post. He'll be writing about drug abuse in America, about the people and the families it hurts, and the companies and the descarados who are to blame. Again, the people behind the stories. Welcome, David. Thank you, Carlos. Much appreciated. You know, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, and the stories, you know, we, we tend to wrap our minds around them like them being Florida man stories, and that makes them kind of feel ridiculous, you know, but we always forget that there's people behind these stories, and, and you've done always such a great job at at bringing that out, you know, and that's what I found interesting. Um, I guess what strikes me is the motivations behind the people that commit some of these crimes. Have you allowed yourself to think about that over the years, like what ultimately drove these people that you ended up coming across in a court docket? You know, I think one of the reasons I've always, people always ask me, why do you stick to writing about um, some of these tragedies for so long? And I think because you see so many different elements of the human condition mm -hmm. when you're writing about a crime story, right? You see jealousy, you see greed, you see betrayal, you see all of these things that sort of boil down to the rawest human element um, in these stories. And for me, the important thing um, writing about crime in Miami has always been to sort of keep pecking away and finding those those um, heartbreaks, those um, absurdities, um, the dark absurdities of this place, um, and and bringing it out there because they happen. And and if you can you know report it out and and tell people stories they're appreciative um, but also the readers benefit by understanding the richness of this community and Miami really is they told me when I first got here it was the best news town in in in, uh, in the country and I still believe that to to this day 20 years later yeah I, I imagine as you start looking into some of these you know digging into the crimes itself some of these these things start to have like a universal appeal do you find that like you know we were thinking about that earlier like is it you know is it does it boil down to like crime and passion and like have you thought about those things are there certain things that tie them together you know um you know miami is is a big city and in many ways um it still has some some small town kind of elements and one Absolutely. of the things that i've found in in writing about you know there's these things that that happened decades ago and years ago somehow find themselves making their way back into the news. Grudges, and vendettas. Grudges, vendettas, um, just weird, strange ties. And, you know, being 20 years in one place, you start to see this. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've written about somebody um, 
who I wrote about their father getting murdered or their father being arrested for a murder. Oh, wow. And then the same thing or some crazy unfortunate thing happens to them years down the road. And so there's there's just sort of this, this um, I don't know, it's not symmetry, but it's just this sort of like... It's an echo. Um, yeah, it's like this weird circle that, that these things come back. And Miami has such a rich past too that always finds it's it's creeping back up into into the stories that happen now in some weird way that really you don't see in any other place but Miami. Right. What what's something that that stands out in your mind when you think about something like that, like somebody who you wrote about, who then you end up writing about a family member, something decades later, or oh, I can tell you one that that popped out right away. I just did it a couple couple months ago. Um, you know, there was this really terrible story about this sixteen year old boy um up in uh broward and he him and another kid they they carjacked a maserati or something or it was the alfa romeo and um they ended up leading the police on a, this chase down into miami and he it's just him at this in the car at this point and he ends up crashing into a wall mm. like a like a like a concrete wall Oof. um somewhere in liberty city and Fire rescue comes and you know and checks him out. He's under arrest, you know all that stuff. They check him out. And they say no, no, he's good. He's he's fine. Um, then you know they put him in the back of a police car. He ends up um, collapsing and dying from the um, injuries he suffered in the crash. Oh my god! Terrible story. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible horrible. story. Um, all the way around. All the way around. Yeah. And his name is Christopher Walls. And I remember that name sounded so familiar to me. And so I call and I call his, um, I call, I believe it was his, uh, his mom. And I said, I said, ma'am, is this the same Christopher Wall whose father died, um, killed himself in jail, you know, over a decade ago, um, after he'd been arrested for a murder. Oh my God. Um, and by the way, had also had another thing where he got left in a, in a hot corrections van, um, and almost died. Oh my um, God. she said, yeah, that's his father. Wow. Christopher Walls. And I remembered the name because I've been here long enough and I remember these things. And, and I just remember being like, and I can't tell you how many times that's happened where I've written about somebody and then I end up writing about their kid. Um, and those things just happen all the time if you stay in Miami long enough. What do you think that says, though, about, um, I mean, is there something that you've been able to extrapolate over the years of when, when you see stories like that, that echo, that that are family members that might be... Like you said, it might be that they're uh, in a situation. Like you said, his father was was in prison, that kind of thing. Like, do you do you start to see more and more of those? Yeah, those I think yeah. It, I think it tells you. I mean, just in that case itself, I think it tells you a lot about um, some of the the uh, socioeconomic opportunities that people have. It tells right. you something about poverty. Um, it tells you about the the sort of um, criminal justice the system. criminal justice system. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I and I see that a lot, and that happens. Um, you know, in, in so many cases where you see people's lives have been destroyed from the, from the get-go and then they end up um, getting in trouble for much the same thing, um, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's, um, you know, selling drugs, whether it's, uh, I mean, sort of like history repeats itself um, so much in the news. And one of the things that I've been fortunate to be in Miami is that I'm able to, I've been here long enough um, that I have the sort of the knowledge and the background to recognize those things. Right. I don't think, besides his family, I'm not sure there's anyone else that would have known Christopher Walls, who died, uh, hung himself in jail 15 years ago or whatever, right? right. But um, these things always stick out to me, and so I'm always, you know, always looking at the names and trying to figure out, you know, what the backstory is. You you drop into their li- these lives of folks who are gen- who are otherwise, you know, anonymous among the millions the millions of us walking around living our lives, and you 
you drop into this place in their lives and are able to see it. Yeah, yeah, and I think the thing, and I think it's it's even more important now that we have the digital media age where it's like you know you know a story that goes viral on the internet, um, and then and then we kind of just move on. The news cycle is so fast. Of course. Um, so for me, for for I think for journalism, it's very important to just keep pecking away at those stories, trying to peel back the layers of the onion to find out what is the what is what is the bigger picture story, what is the more interesting human angle that maybe this this crazy thing happened, but you know instead of just forgetting about it the next day, going back and finding out what was the backstory, what led up to this you know crazy thing that happened, and oftentimes is when you find the most powerful uh, human stories. Yeah, where you kind of go beyond the headline. Obviously, that that's been a concern for a while. Where we see the quote unquote Florida man stories, right? And and we just you know people write it off. Sometimes people don't even read the story and they just see the headline and move on. And I'm curious, were there times with you where you went, you know, you go behind and you get to know these stories that you just live with them at home, like when you come home and you sit with them. Have you ever found that 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 dealing with some of these stories and learning people's personal stories and and the things that they faced, you you go home and you kind of live with that. Yeah, I think I, I obviously like when I first started, some of these tragedies might hit me hit me a little bit differently. They sure. stuck with you a little more. I hate to say it, you get desensitized after a while. Um, and I've been always pretty good at, de- at compartmentalizing. And obviously, I've dealt with grieving victims, and I and I and I know um, how to empathize and 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 talk to people. Um, but I, I'm always been very careful to, to to kind of leave it at the you know in the office. Um, then I became a father, hmm. and congratulations by the yes, way. Yes, and I became a father eight months ago, and um, and she's wonderful. And now when I see things dealing with kids, um, it hits me a little bit different. Yeah, right? Empa- so, empathy and sympathy are yeah. There is there is a there is a leap between. Yeah, them. yeah. I mean, I think honestly, one of the toughest days I've had in in uh, since she was born work-wise was sitting through the Parkland trial the day that the uh, all the family members um, talked about the the um, the impact that this that this shooting had had the loss of their loved ones had had and it wasn't just one it was one after the other after the other and tons of fathers talking about how you know their daughters are forever frozen in time because they will always be 14 years old right, right. Um, and that one I was like you know I'm I, you know, messaged my fiance. I said, you know, send me a picture of, of the baby because it just was hitting me hard. Um, and so that's different. Whenever you can sort of relate to something a little bit more, it, it just adds that much more of a of a of a um, emotional, um, you know, tears at you a little bit more emotionally. Do you get tired of the doom and gloom? No, because I think there's always just the nature of the human condition there's always interesting and powerful ways and powerful threads that pop up in Mm. stories Mm. right and you might not always find them but if you do um it's just it's a whole new um thing to explore you know i'm always eternally curious and i want to um you know find out as much as i can about whatever topic and or whatever person and and if I can tell their story, um, no, I mean people are infinitely interesting. So I don't, I, I don't always think there's doom and gloom. You can always draw out some sort of positivity mm-hmm. um, in in even the the worst story. And um, and so that that's sort of my 
my thinking on it. But I mean, it can wear on you, but I, I don't think I've ever not wanted to do it. We're speaking with David Ovalle. He covers uh, crime in the courts for the Miami Herald. He's done it for over 20 years. Uh, soon he's going to start writing about uh, drug abuse uh, for the Washington Post. David, why? what made you decide to change? I know obviously there's always politics of moving from one job to the other, but tell me a, a little bit about some of the stories that you had covered that made you think more about people's personal struggle, struggles with like drug addiction and, and abuse in, uh, in this country. Um, well, you know, um, a couple, couple things, um, you know, uh, one of my colleagues at the Herald, Jay Weaver and I, we did a project a few years ago. This is back in 2015 ish, where we wrote about the synthetic drug trade. And do you remember at the time there was like this synthetic drug called Flocka that was sort of like, like making a big, uh, you know, causing big alarms up in Broward County. Right, it and was like uh, like bath salts and kind of, in yeah. that same family. Uh, yes, yes. Or, and it or was, right around the same time. Uh-huh, and it was actually, it was like making people go crazy. and, and But really it was actually just a sort of an, a, a different chemical of what we commonly know as Molly, right? Oh, um, is that what it was yeah, ultimately? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the drug that this alpha PVP that was basically one that was sort of masquerading as Molly. Molly is just a, a term that's used um, generally generally for these sort of club drugs, um, but they can be different chemicals. You don't know what you're ingesting. It's just, you know, basically chemicals that are coming from China or at the time were coming from China. Wait, wait, you mean if I go to a club and I just have some drugs, I, I, I shouldn't expect to know what's in uh, yeah, them? Come yes, on, Dave. The quality control is lacking. <laughs> um, so at the time we wrote about these, these, um, um, these sort of new wave of synthetic drug dealers, and it was like a bunch of college kids, like an FIU kid, uh, some kids from UM, who had figured out that they could order... Um, synthetic drugs, Molly and, and other stuff, um, through the mail in China, and it comes in the mail, um, uh, you know, masquerading as as you know tea or something or whatever. But they could turn, let's say, a two thousand uh, dollar investment into a certain amount of of um, uh, methylone and turn that into you know a hundred thousand dollars, right? So these 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 young people were just figuring this out, and it was. And it was exploding, and they were making a lot of money. God, it's was, like it's like the story of 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 drug, drug sell of drug sales everywhere forever, yeah, right? It's yeah, like somebody yeah. finds that they can sell this thing that other people want to buy yeah, for yeah. And, illegal thing. And and at the time, um, we realized, and we sat down with the toxicology folks over at the Miami Dade Medical Examiner's Office, and they said, "Yeah, you know, Flaca is it's not the, the health effects. It's not killing that many people. And frankly, neither is Molly. But what's really um, starting to kill a lot of people." is something else and that something else is illegal fentanyl mm. and this isn't the fentanyl that's um that you get in patches when you go to uh, after you've had a surgery or something this is um, basically street stuff that is um basically like a synthetic heroin but it's way more powerful um and it's popping up in overdose victims all over miami wow. um so we realized, you know, we had to do the health component of this and how it's affecting people. Um, and at the time, Overtown was the sort of epicenter of overdoses and for, of fentanyl and, and heroin. And it wasn't people from Overtown. It was people from Palm Beach County, people from upstate, people who were leaving sober homes up in the, you know, middle of Florida, coming down to, to Miami and buying um, what they believed was heroin and it was actually laced with fentanyl and then going down to a vacant lot um, injecting themselves oh and, and and dying right and so we rode along with Miami Fire Rescue I mean the calls were just insane through the roof the the number of deaths were going through the roof and this just sort of presaged what we are seeing now what sort of 
has been happening since then. Right. Um, and and since, all those things become connected. Then you start to see uh, those connections. And then it talks about a, a bigger picture, right? A, a bigger picture of, of what drug abuse means and how it affects people and communities absolutely absolutely and now we see it now we see it it's it's gotten so pervasive um you know it's no longer um coming in the mail as much as it used to now the mexican cartels have taken over um the the trade and really so most of the fentanyl we're seeing that's popping up all over the place in the united states is pouring across the southern border it's not how it was in 2014 2015 when we first started writing about it um and um and it's much more pervasive and and it's popping up in drugs in, in drugs that normally we didn't used to see it right so now um you know i wrote about a young a young lady who was here from um i think pennsylvania and ended up dying of an overdose a uh, fentanyl overdose mm. um on south beach and she thought she was taking like a percocet you know just like one that she bought from some guy that she was given to her from some guy she met right um and no it was actually fentanyl not not a percocet so she um which is just you know like a painkiller um and so there's a lot of that a lot of that going on all over the country i mean we're just seeing it just pervasively now well, it's, it's one of the things you learn when you cover crime in a place uh, for, for 20 years. We're speaking with David Ovalle, who's covered crime in courts for the Miami Herald for more than 20 years. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to come back and talk with David about his new beat and his new job and a little bit about his background. That's in a minute on Sundial. And we're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias. Our guest today is David Ovalle, who has covered crime in the courts for the Miami Herald for more than 20 years. And one of the things, David, that I think that you've done well is that you've told us the stories of the people behind these stories, the people behind the crimes. Um, one that I think of, and it's not a crime so much as it is a person that a lot of people walked past for years, and uh, it was this uh, homeless gentleman um, who lived down near the courthouse. And, you know, it's so easy, I mean, even in the, in the course of a story, you ended up writing about gentleman he died and uh, you know that could have been uh, you know it's like we see so often in newspapers where it's just a story about somebody being uh, you know killed in a I think it was a car accident or, or like run over and then we don't we don't follow up anymore but you did this really interesting thing where you really tracked the story of this gentleman and how he ended up where he was you can you will you tell us a little bit about that yeah red 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 is one of those, his name is Brett Heisinger, but Brett Heisinger. everyone knew him as Red because he had this sort of crazy red hair. Um, and he's one of these people that you see on the side of the road at the courthouse. Everyone knew him. Everyone would, you know, he was really nice. He had this sort of like really high pitched voice and he would always just talk to you. And he was just like a pleasant guy, but he was very distinct looking. And he had... He had two eyes that kind of looked in opposite directions, and he had this sort of really distinct kind of crazy look, um, and everyone knew him. And one day, I'm, I'm just in my apartment, and I'm scrolling on the phone, and you know those, those little like weird ads that pop up at the bottom of news stories and other websites where it's like these weird... Like, you know, um, yeah, one weird trick. Yeah. One a, weird trick that'll lower your, your, you know, your cholesterol. Cholesterol. Yeah. So um, I saw his picture on one of those ads. And you, and you had known him. And you had you recognize him because a part of covering courts for you was going to the courthouse literally every day, and and what I was trying to explain to the producers in the other room was like that's sometimes just sitting in a room, quiet room for four hours looking through court dockets. But you recognized his his picture. Yep, I recognized his picture, and um, and I saw it, and it was on this weird medication. It was just like a weird ad for like lowering your 
your blood pressure or something, right? It was really weird. And I'm like, this is this is odd. It, it was his jail mugshot, you oh, know, wow. and his jail mugshot had gone viral. And so I reverse searched it and I found his mugshot had been used on like, like the most like terrible websites, like world's weirdest people looking.com, lookingpeople.com and like all these, he basically became a meme. And, and you would find him in all these memes, you know, oh, where wow. you, and because he had these distinct eyes that looked in different directions and he had just sort of this, weird, and I was like, that is really messed up. That is really messed um, up, yeah. And how does someone's jail mugshot end up as this being used to sell some weird, probably bogus medication, right? Right. So I ran into him down in court and I'm like, hey, Red, you know, um, hey, I saw your, your, your photo was being used and I explained it to him and he was just like, oh yeah, people tell me that kind of stuff all the time. I, he said, but come talk to me. And I was running into a court here. I said, look, dude, I'm going to come down uh, next week. I'll find you. We'll talk about it. Maybe we can do a story about it. He's like, okay, yeah, you know, just come. Um, two days after that, he was panhandling on the side of the courthouse underneath the overpass and he got hit and killed in a hit and run. Oh my God. And I was stunned. Yeah. You know, I was stunned and everyone was stunned when they learned about it. So um, I ended up researching his back and he just had the most um, compelling backstory. I mean, he was someone that, um, as we talk about drugs, he was yeah. someone that of course had been dealing with a drug addiction um, that started when he was really young because he had been... Um, living a very tough life. I mean, his his parent, I believe his mother had died of an overdose. His father, I think, had also died of an overdose. If I remember, um, his grandfather got murdered in the house where he was at the same, like, he was, like, in the other room. Right. Um, I mean, just this terrible, like, upbringing. And then he ends up being, like, a carnival worker on a traveling carnival. Um, and he just had all these twists and turns, and he just ends up basically becoming a fixture outside of the courthouse and no one ever knew about and I talked to his family and they were very appreciative of the story that we did on him um, and I think it also told us a lot about just sort of the modern age right how 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 we kind of dehumanize people just based on their their photo right right and so that was to me was really compelling and here he was and to this day they've never found the driver that that hit and killed him right well why was it important to you to, to tell that story like, what is it that struck you about him and that story in general that, that made you go down the rabbit hole? Because, I mean, the doing the journalism to find family members and tracking them down and talking with them and having very difficult conversations regarding a family member who's just passed. I mean, it's it's the hardest job in journalism is talking to someone whose family member died. What yeah. made you want to do that? Um, I, I just, I don't know. I After I found out what happened to him, I just felt like, you know, his, his story... And, and the way he was sort of treated online felt unfair. Um, and I think because so many people knew him around the courthouse or just had met him or seen him or bought him a sandwich or whatever, I'm like, you know what? The people who have seen him and who sort of know him, they probably would want to read about his his story and what it what he what a, a person like him means in the in the grander scheme of our of our town. And he is like he was like a gazillion people that you pass every day that end up transient, end up in Miami, end up living on the streets, dealing with drugs and being arrested for petty crimes um, and unable to get themselves back on track. Um, so that's what it was. I think he, he represented a lot of what we see every day but don't want to acknowledge in this town. And, and that's interesting because the new job that you're going to do for the Washington Post kind of dives into that, right? Is telling the stories of these people 
the people behind the addiction, right? Which is, we end up using a term like drug addict <coughs> or a homeless person. You know, you don't realize that it's a person who ends up through whatever circumstances losing their home or someone who ends up going down the, the rabbit hole of maybe, you know, whatever led to their becoming addicted to that, that kind of drug. What is interesting to you about, like, why is that important for you to tell those kinds of stories? I remember in 2007, you won't find the story online because it's, it's so old, um, but back then I used to go through the medical examiner roles and try to find, and find out who got murdered over the weekend or during the week and find out what happened to these people and what their backstories were. And I can't tell you how many of them never ended up panning out to anything, but I ran across a gentleman who was actually not that far from the courthouse um, in Alapata somewhere, um, a guy by the name of Claude Crenson. And he was a homeless man who lived behind a Valero gas station, and he had been beaten to death with a crowbar. Oh my God! And and I'm like, you know, this is an this is like an Anglo guy in a really Hispanic neighborhood. Um, there's there's something interesting here, but I just don't know what it is yet. So I just kept trying to find. I eventually tracked down his brother, and his brother um, did not know he had been murdered. They hadn't. The police had never been able to find any of his family but he was gracious and he talked to me and he told me you know my brother he was known as the bird man and mm. it was true when his pigeons were still there in his little encampment behind the gas station and everyone knew him as the bird man oh, and he would sell he would trap pigeons and he would sell them to santeros he would sell them to um you know other people for whatever reasons um and turns out like 20 years before he had been this world famous legendary bird trapper really and he had contracts with the school board in fact he probably took pigeons off this very building we're in oh that's um, so and funny. he would trap them humanely he wouldn't kill them and use poisons or anything and he drove around town in this like really goofy truck with like a big like pigeon cage like attached to the back and um he was like really well known he was so well known that the wall street journal did a front page you know, the little stories they do that are like the sort of interesting human interest stories. They did a whole feature just on this guy. Um, and his particular... And his particular, like, job. job, like, being the master pigeon trapper. He was like, he was like the world-famous pigeon trapper. And then his life descended into a crack cocaine addiction. Wow. And he completely disappeared. He got divorced. He, you know, broke off all his ties with his family, ended up living on the street beaten to death with a crowbar behind a gas station in Alapata. Wow. And those are the types of stories that I'm like, you know, he deserves to have his story told. And how people get there, right? Because obviously that's mm -hmm. the that's the story of drugs in America, uh, drugs anywhere, right? Is is addiction derails families. And sometimes and sometimes to this kind of end, to the end, not where someone gets the chance to, to rehabilitate, but becomes this permanent thing. And and I guess those are the kind of stories that you're going to be able to keep telling. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And and that's and and the the cool thing is now I'm I'm blessed that I'm hopefully be able to tell those types of stories um, on a national scale and explore different parts of the country and explore different themes and um, kind of use everything that I've. Uh, written about over the years and, and kind of find new ways of telling things. So so I'm excited. It's bittersweet. I love this town. I mean, this town is, I feel more a part of Miami than I do my native California. Um, but, but 
yeah, I mean, this this place is special. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about your native California and how you got there and a little bit about your background uh, after we come back from this little break. We're talking with David Ovalle, who's covered crime in the courts from the Miami Herald for more than 20 years. Uh, be back in a minute. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest today is David Ovalle, who's covered crime and courts for the Miami Herald for more than 20 years, and he's moving on to the Washington Post. Uh, but David became a South Florida guy uh, because he was originally a Southern Cal guy. And before that, like, uh, your, your family is Guatemalan. But tell me a little bit about your background. Were you, were you born in Guatemala? Were you born in Southern Cal? No, actually born, born in Southern California to a uh, single mom who raised three of us on her own. Um, and, wow, uh, she had her hands full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, do you, where do you fall in the line of those three? Yeah, I'm the baby. I'm the uh, I'm the youngest. Oh, you got your way. With yeah, everything. I did. I did, and I was also, um, you know, my mom was a, you know, uh, worked as like a, a an aide at an elementary school library, and so I was stuck in the library for a long time every day after school, and so I just would read books and read books and read books, and then try to make my own books and. Uh, and funny enough, somehow in, in, in high school, I ended up taking a journalism class and I'm like, wow, they're going to pay me to write? This is great. <laughs> and, and so I've, you know, one of those rare, rare cases where I always wanted to do journalism from early age and just never wanted to do anything else. Um, and funny enough, I was obsessed with Miami for, it was the nineties. It was that whole like Will Smith, uh, birdcage era, you know, when South beach was just coming up and I was just obsessed with Miami. I'd go into like those, remember those old, um, those old AOL chats, you know, yeah. and I would go to the Miami room and I'd be, you know, you do like the ASL, you know, Hey Miami. <laughs> and I just would, I, anything to do with Miami, I soaked it up. That's so funny. I mean, was it like a Miami vice thing or like, where do you think you got that, that interest? I think it was just media, you know, you'd see Miami's, you know, there's this terrible movie that I, I remember, it's terrible now, but at the time, it was this movie called The Pest, do you remember it? I don't. With John Leguizamo, and it's horrible, don't watch it, it's so <laughs> offensive in so many ways, but at the time, I'm like, it was based in Miami, and I was like, wow, that looks so cool, it looks so great, <laughs> and I go back and I cringe when I watch it now, but um, I don't know, just seeing stuff when you're a teenager, you're like, Miami's great, that's where I'm going to work, and um and yeah, I ended up here, no connection other than I just wanted to be here, but I managed to get lucky and met um, at a Hispanic journalism conference. I met a, a reporter who worked with me on the student newspaper they do for the conference, for, mm -hmm. the, for the convention, uh, a reporter named Frenchie Robles, who um, I like to call her my madrina because she pushed for me to become an intern because she liked my work. And she's um, at the uh, New York Times. And now she's now, at the New York Times. Yeah. yeah, she's she's kicking butt. She's been there, I think, over a decade now. And she's amazing. And so she was one of my early mentors. She pushed for me to come here. And then funny enough, we had a, a legendary editor named Gene Gene Miller, and he was a legendary reporter, um, won, you know, a bunch of Pulitzers. Um, and he um, he was the managing editor at the time. And I had a letter of recommendation from one of my college professors who was the editor of Playboy, Steve Randall. And he was one of my, and he wrote me a really nice letter of recommendation. And, and we it, should say Play, Playboy back in the day where like people did actually read it for the articles. Yes, it actually <laughs> was. Yes. And he was an amazing editor and he was an amazing professor. And he wrote me his letter of recommendation on, um, on Playboy letterhead. 
and that just that just like stood out and and the editor gene miller just thought that was like the coolest thing ever that is the um, most that is the miamiest person to hire yes like, like, so this, they were this like will fit this so <laughs> they just so they i remember and, and gene called up steve randall and and you know grilled him for like you know 40 minutes about me and and they were like all right well come on down to the herald so i came in and back then as a year intern and the first three months um were in metro because i had asked him if i could work metro first and then the rest is going to be in sports and because you started as a sports writer right like, yeah that was your interest in college i was all sports i was the usc uh you know sports editor managing editor for the daily trojan i mean yeah i was like all about sports but my first first three months i had thought you know i had an inkling maybe i want to switch to news like what was it what was the thing that you were like is this going to be my life as a sports writer because I, I was a sports writer so i i feel you uh, on on many things that come to the tedium of sports writing. Yeah, I think you know what it was. I think it was the Dolphins ruined me. Yeah, the Dolphins for, will make you for, cry. Is, uh, is <laughs> because I was like I was like the, I was like the third beat writer on the Dolphins, and I just remember being at like training camp, and I'm like, like everyone's fighting over scoops that are just seems so inconsequential. It's like you know. I don't know. Ricky Williams has an ankle injury. Scoop, you know, exclusive right. here. And you he's know, hurt us. He's got he, a bruised toe. Yeah, he's not. He's not practicing today. And I'm like, and it just it was right when like before social media, but it was like a lot of pressure to put things online. And and I'm like, you're fighting over like the I don't know. Not all of it seemed pretty not important. And frankly, I wasn't really enjoying sports anymore because it's so much work. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the people forget that. that. Yeah. That is one of the hardest grinds, especially. High school sports writing. And I was doing that. And Oof. I can't tell you, I, I could not keep stats for the life of me covering high school football. And <laughs> and I just was terrible at it. I could not keep up with it. Um, and people forget that like when you're covering high schools, which you did, it's, it's, that's very much an entry-level job. But it's also like prove your worth. Like if you can make it through this you're you're gonna make it's like covering crime really crime uh like the police beat too is like if you can survive this we've got something better for you down the road right yeah yeah so it was like i just like do i really want my life to be revolving around touchdowns and you know and box scores and stuff like that and 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 then i just found like the the first day when i was uh, my very first day at the herald in 2002 um, you know, the first day of internships, you just, just like, whatever, you fill out paperwork, you go, you don't really do a whole lot. But right. that day, at the very end of the day, they said, hey, can you, um, there was a murder-suicide up in El Portal. Can you go up there? And I'm, I said, sure. I had no idea where I was going, but I went. Back then, we didn't have GPS. I had to, you know, use one of those map books and get up there. And <laughs> um, and I and, and I I was terrified. And the family members of this this ballerina a former city of Miami ballerina who had been murdered by her husband who then killed himself. Oh my God. And it was a terrible story and I was terrified yeah. to um, speak to the next of kin and I, you know, I just asked the worst journalism question ever which is, your daughter was murdered, how do you feel about that? Right. And But they were so gracious. They could see I was like a young reporter and they were very nice and I got to tell a little bit about her story. And I, I'm curious about that. I want you to stop there in a second because I think that <clears throat> The reason we find out about the stories of people's lives, people that we've lost, people who've been killed, is because someone eventually says to someone who's a family member and a loved one, tell us about your loved one. And I think that there is a grace in that. And I think that sometimes journalists get cast as in the role of like, uh, you know, the, the, the vultures, right? But like you get to hear the stories. The reason that the, the world knows about these people is because someone asked, will you tell us about your loved one? Now, tell me a little bit about the power of finding the right way to ask that question, right? And then what have you found when you deal with family members when they get 
when they're asked to tell you about their family? You know, I found that it can be very cathartic for people to talk about their loved ones. Absolutely. And, and I know because, you know, when I talk about people who have passed away in my life, I want to just extol their the good things about them. And even in traumatic situations, it ends up being a little bit of a release for people. Um, so one of the things that I learned early on and sort of the way I approach a, a grieving uh, widow, let's say, you know, you know, I'll say, hey, can you, um, you know, we, we'd like to write a story about your loved one's life. Um, maybe you could start by telling me what made them special. And and people will talk and talk and and I think it's fair. I think it's a I think people want to have their loved ones um, uh, stories told. And um, so I you know in many ways it's in many ways it's writing kind of like a like an obituary you know but mm -hmm. sometimes in a more traumatic thing but uh, traumatic sense. But um, yeah, people always have interesting things about their lives. Everyone has someone that loves them. Um, there's only one case I can ever recall where I ever called someone. And their mother did not have anything good to say. <laughs> that was only one case that I remember writing about. Where they had the, nothing good to say. They, that their mother just, I could not believe it, um, but uh, where a mom just completely bashed her own son after I'd called him. All right, without saying who that person was, what what would he, like, what, I like that, my no good son, what? Yeah, I called. It was it was a, 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 a young man who had gotten, well, not young, he was probably in his 40s, who had gotten uh, murdered during a drug deal gone wrong and someone, they robbed them or something, and... I remember I said, well, let me find out what, what the backstory is. And I called his mom, and she's just an older woman, Miami Shores area, and she just proceeded to vent with me for, uh, you know, an hour about how he stole all her money and um, was a worthless son. And I couldn't, Oof. I'm like, but even there's value in that because, yeah, you know, you see how drugs can destroy people's families. Right, right. And also it tells you a little bit about the family. That yeah, yeah. But but for the most part, people people want to talk and they want to tell their stories. And sometimes it's tough. Sometimes you have to ask tough questions. But I think at the end of the day, they appreciate your interest, um, especially if it's if it's after the sort of the crush of the news cameras are gone. Right. You know, your stories have been heavy, but I do recall one not heavy story. You wrote this really cute, funny story about rehabilitating a bird like what was it like you found a bird that had fallen out of a tree and like it was totally not a david ovaya story but yet it was it was like the most you right tell me about that it was it oh, happened over yes. the pandemic right yeah winston yeah so winston my, the yes. bird's name was winston yeah my my fiance found a uh found a little a little uh fledgling uh in you know it was bird season she brought it home and and um and we started raising it, trying to just, we figured we'd release it. And it turns out it imprinted on us. Oh my God. And we loved the little bird and it grew into this, but it thought we were his parents. And oh, um, this was your first, this was your first baby. This, yes. This preceded the baby. So, <laughs> so we, uh, and then we, you know, we let him go and then he, he like, we spent all night agonizing and then he came back the next day and it just turned, if you just Google Winston, the, the grackle and you'll, you'll find it. And, um, it turned out to be a really personal story and we were just, we're agonizing about this poor bird. And then what do we do with him? And we ended up, um, and I mentioned it to my editor, Curtis Morgan, who's, who's great. And, and, you know, used to cover the environment and he, um, he said, you know, why don't you write a story about it? And, and so I did, I called Ron McGill from Metro zoo. I oh, called, perfect. I called, uh, um, 
some other uh, bird experts and, and they sort of helped us figure out how to take care of it. But we said, you know, let's turn this into a learning thing. So we wrote this personal story about about um, our experience um, and everything we did wrong in raising this this funny little bird that sort of took over our lives for for, you know, a month or so. And um, and it had a happy ending, I think, because he rehabilitated. He was able to to go back out into the wild, and we hope he's, you know, making little grackles somewhere in <laughs> Homestead. And the bird gave you baby fever. Yes, yes, and lo and behold, and, and we named our, our kid after a bird, so I guess that's oh, sort of funny. Uh, you named your kid after a bird? Well, her name's Phoenix, so yeah, ah. it's, it's, it's a type of bird, a mythical bird. I love that. What are you, you going to miss about Miami and about covering things on this beat? Anything? I think the this place can be darkly absurd and there's so many weird moments that I feel like you only find here in Miami. I mean, just the things that are absurd about I mean, you see it like whenever you log on to Only in Date or whatever, right? <laughs> like you see just these weird things that happen. Um, you know, I mean, it's like Well, like the 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 People selling black market Colombian fajas, like the those, those spandex girdles, right? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great. Yeah, that was a great story. That was that was one that that uh, someone had mentioned to me in the courthouse. Was like, hey, you know, there was a, I have a case where they stole like millions of dollars worth of fajas from like a you know a warehouse in Doral, and those and that fascinated me. I, who knew? Because you see them all the time, right? You're driving on the Palmetto, and you'll see you know Colombian fajas, you know wholesale, and you'll see all these these businesses all over the place and you're like that's really a business huh right and like you're driving down a street and it's like you'll yeah. see a bunch of the little the walk-in stores yeah and and turns out there's a huge market for a huge black market for fajas <laughs> um and and, and i did it's, listen if there's any if there's ever anything for sale there's always someone who wants it cheaper yes and you know things like that things like the you know the weird plastic surgery stories that you know where they can be terrible where it's like same route right yeah the same route not yeah. like someone who wants it cheaper and like yeah and it ends up and it ends up um you know can be very dangerous it can be um you know just a lot of things like that sort of the weird absurd things like you're just there's a, a certain flair here and i think maybe it's a little of the the diversity of this place where you just um just the weirdest things happen and and i'm just honored that i was around here to, to tell the stories we've heard this before and I, i'm curious where you stand on it like the idea that florida men could only happen in florida like do, do we get the weird florida stories because some like there's something in the water or is it because we have open access to more records like we can read more about uh, things that are, people are actually doing and crimes that people are committing versus in other places. Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, I think it's a little combination of both. Um, I think um, Florida has just such a transient population, so you have so many people from different parts of the world, from different states, from different uh, countries that sort of end up here, and so you get these conflict points that happen all the time um, because you have these worlds colliding. And then Florida has great public record laws. So most most stuff that's in a criminal, most evidence in criminal cases ends up being public um, almost from the get-go. Um, you know, arrest reports, um, our police reports generally are, are public um, you know, at some point eventually. Um, and in other states, you have to fight to get any information out of out of just simple things out of the police department where mm -hmm. here it's like, you know, can you give us information on this shooting that happened? Okay. Here's everything you, you know, there's so, I think there's a little bit more access. There's a lot more access. Mm -hmm. Um, but that doesn't explain everything. I think just, it's just a rich state, a big state 
with a lot of different conflict points that end up making for interesting stories. Yeah, I think uh, uh, um, Leonard Pitts told us once that Miami is the city of the future. In other words, and everything that that means, uh, all the things that we'll see culturally, like even cultural touch points, you know, worlds colliding, so to speak, um, you know, um, um, different different uh, immigrant communities shaping a city, how that will be so much more uh, like reflective of the rest of America. And I'm wondering if you found that too, like different, like where cultures, cultures and people and people from different countries, like where they met, uh, where those th- points collided and that led to different stories. You know, the one story that no one will remember, and you can't find it on the internet, at least from the Herald, um, but there was a guy named Miguel Rodriguez. And this, in the 70s, there was this spate of hijackings involving Cubans who had come to Miami um, and then wanted to go back to Cuba because they hated life here. Oh, wow. And so how they did that was they started hijacking planes and and saying, you know, go back to, to Havana, please. Take oh, me to Havana. Oh, wow. So they would yes. hijack Yes, and this was like a whole thing in the 70s. And that happened um, with this guy, Miguel, and his brother. And they had just like a bag full of like... I don't know, water or something or soda and they claimed it was a bomb. It wasn't. And everyone was like, are these people serious? And so anyways, they ended up back. He did some time in Havana uh, jail and then he ends up um, living in Cuba. He's exactly what he wanted. Um, but then he had a daughter and his daughter got the, a visa to move to Miami and she moved to Miami. Wow. And so he decides he misses his daughter a lot and he wants to come back to Miami from Cuba. And he sneaks back in through the Mexican border. He's living under assumed name. But, you know, as, uh, as, as, as what happens a lot with Miami, it was, you know, very loud and boisterous. And, and you know, he was telling people about this. Um, and somebody, a private investigator, happened to overhear him at like a, you know, it was like a Sergio's or a, a you know, a Versailles or something, some kind of Cuban restaurant. Right. Overhears people talking about, oh, yeah, yeah, Miguel, the one who hijacked the plane, he's back in town. You know, he's been telling people he's... Figures it out, does some research, calls the FBI. He's waiting in line to get his green card, finally, under this assumed name, and they arrest him. Wow. Because, remember, he was still wanted for hijacking that plane. That is incredible. And so here was this guy guy who wanted to leave Miami in the most dramatic way, but got sucked back into it for the love of family, for the love of bettering his life, and ends up in prison. Wow. The irony is he's out now, and uh, and he did his time, but he's not going to get deported to Cuba because we don't de- we don't really deport to Cuba. So, um, yeah. So it's it's just that story always sticks out with me because it was just such a weird and terribly um, poignant story. And it's one of those that can only happen here. How are you gonna How are you gonna live without this place, David? Uh, care packages, Bustelo, <laughs> Pilon. Just send it, send it up to DC, please. Uh, we're speaking with David Ovalle, who's covered crime and courts for the Miami Herald for more than 20 years. He's soon going to start uh, writing about opioids for the Washington Post. When do you start, David? Uh, I start February 6th. February so, 6th. yep, movers come tomorrow and we'll, we'll be headed up. And what is, is there anything that you want to accomplish in Florida before you leave in the last couple, in the last minute that we have here? Is there anything you want to do before you head out of town? Uh, I think the main thing is I just want to see, um, you know, the Miami Herald thrive. It's a place that's near and dear to my heart. You know, all the, the ups and downs, uh, of my career and, and the paper's career. And there's so much craziness with the paper and, and it's, 
it's a place that I truly dearly love and I want to see all the people that I've worked with like you and all the people that are working there just continue to kick butt and uh, and tell the amazing stories of this place so really that that's the main thing just uh, renew my subscription oh good I, I'm sure they'll be happy to hear that so you'll, you'll have a subscription to the post one of the Herald and then you're going to contribute to public radio down here at LRN right exactly exactly <laughs> Uh, we've been speaking to uh, David Owaya, who's covered crime in the courts for the Miami Herald for more than 20 years. He'll soon be leaving to Washington, D.C. to write about uh, substance abuse and the opioid crisis for The Washington Post. David, thank you so much for coming in the studio and hanging out and uh, talking with us for an hour. Carlos, you're the best. Thank you, man. And that's Sundown for Monday, January 23rd. Leslie Owaya Atkinson, no relation, is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor and senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. You like that theme music? Uh, that's by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. If you missed any part of this episode, you can search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Cuban-American playwright Nilo Cruz. His Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Anna in the Tropics, is celebrating its 20th anniversary, and Nilo is directing a production of the play at the Colony Theater through February 12th. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.